We have been looking at a series together called Encounters with Jesus. Uh, one of the books of the Bible is called John. It's written by a guy, a guy called John. Um, and it's about one of the accounts of the life of Jesus. And we've been looking as individuals have met Jesus and seen how they have responded to him, what they and we can learn about him. And in something that I've never done before, I'm going to start this sermon by quoting myself. Because we actually started this series not two months ago, but four months ago. And we talked about the reality of what it looks like to to meet, to encounter Jesus. And I said this, so what is Christianity? Who are Christians? We could look at the historic confessions of the church. We could look at the many doctrines that the Bible teaches. But this series is going to point us towards one central truth about the reality of a Christian. A Christian is someone who has come to know God through an encounter with Jesus. Someone who has come to know God through an encounter with Jesus. Every Christian, not just in this room, not just in this country, not just at this time, but across all 2,000 years of the church in every country, every single Christian is somebody who has met Jesus through his words and have believed the words of Jesus, have trusted in what he has done for them and by trusting and believing have found life. And we have seen as we've walked through, that's the end of the quote, We've seen as we've walked through John how men and women, rich and poor, religious people and irreligious people, successful people and failing people have come to follow Jesus and find what John describes as eternal life. Life in all of its fullness, a life of purpose and happiness, of contentment and joy. But... And it's a big book. Not everyone who encounters Jesus does find that life. Not everyone who encounters Jesus does become a Christian. And I think that's obvious to us. It's obvious as we look around in our world. But it's obvious even if you are a Christian because you know the stories, you know the people who have met Jesus and have walked away unchanged. And many of us will hold people closely to our hearts who, who we desperately hope will come to trust in Jesus and, and have at this point not yet. So as we close out our series this afternoon, we're going to look at an unsuccessful encounter. And it's a strange way to finish. It's, it feels, and it certainly felt this in, as I've prepared for this afternoon, why, why are we finishing on a downer? But I think it's helpful to us to look at some of the reasons, some of the obstacles that are in the way for people before they will trust in Jesus. And so we are going to look at a man called Pontius Pilate. Let's look together, firstly, at what we know about him. Let's look at a a portrait of this man, Pontius Pilate. Of all the people that we've looked at in John, Pontius Pilate is the most well-known outside of the Jesus story. 
We've looked at a number of people who are only known because they are found in the Bible. But Pontius Pilate is somebody that we can read about from other ancient sources. Roman and Jewish historians recorded him and his actions in early in the first century. Firstly, let's just see what John tells us about him. We've, Claire's read it to us. Let me point you back to, to John chapter 18. If you know, want to open up your Bibles again, it'll be helpful to you. This is what we read in verse 28. The Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you're unfamiliar with the the Jesus story, we're at a point towards the end of his earthly life. Jesus has been betrayed by one of his closest friends, a man called Judas. And then he's been arrested by the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders. The land of, of Judah, the people of Israel, were in the Roman Empire. They had been conquered. And so there are different authorities in place. And above them all, in the land of Judea, was this man, Pilate, a Roman governor. A man appointed to the role of managing and controlling this specific part of the empire. And he was an empire man, one with power and control over the land of Palestine. This is the the boss. And John sets that out for us. This is who we're looking at. Who, this is the, the primary role, if you like, of Pilate in the story. We're told by a Jewish historian called Philo, who lived in Egypt. He tells us the account of, of Pilate, how Pilate riled up the Jewish peoples on numerous occasions. Another Jewish historian, Josephus, tells us about how Pilate would foolishly antagonise the people under his rule. He wasn't a Jew, but he would do things, and you can read about them yourselves, to to really get under their skin, either through ignorance or or very deliberately. This is one of the things that uh, Josephus writes about Pilate. This gives us a sense of who he is. Pilate made the soldiers mix with the mob, wearing civilian clothing over their armour, and with orders not to draw their swords, but to use clubs, on the obstreperous, I can't say that, obstreperous, can't say it. He now gave the signal from the tribunal and the Jews were cudgeled so that many died from the blows and many, and as they were fled, were trampled to death by their friends. The fate of those who had perished horrified the crowd into silence. This is the sort of man Pilate is, cruel and calculating. We read another account from a Roman historian called Tacitus who is talking about the events under the emperor Nero when there was a great fire in Rome and Nero cast around for somebody to blame and he he picked on the Christians. He thought they were a weak group and Tacitus writes this about the Christians. Therefore, to stop the rumour, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. 
and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of this disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. Tacitus, not a fan of Christians, I think it would be fair to say, that correctly identifies Pilate as being the governor in charge at the time of the, the death of Jesus, Christus. So in short, Pilate was a man known for his cruelty, his hostility, and he was a man in charge, in charge of Jerusalem and Judea, and the man who had the authority to put Jesus to death. And then Pilate meets Jesus. After Jesus' arrest, he goes on trial before uh, a man called Annas, a former high priest. He's then taken to the current high priest, Caiaphas, and then they take him to Pilate. I want us to think about three problems that faced Pilate as he met with Jesus. Three things for us to examine, three obstacles in the way of Pilate recognizing Jesus and believing in him. Okay, three things. Power, truth and fear power truth and fear firstly let's think about power and the whole way that john sets up this account is he's telling us to think about power so after jesus arrest we just mentioned that he was taken first to anas anas was a, a former high priest but in the way that americans will still refer to their former presidents as presidents so they will still refer to President Obama or President Clinton. In the same way, in the Jewish culture, the former high priest still had the title. And so Jesus was sent to Annas. And then Annas sent him on to the current high priest, somebody with more power. It's actually his son-in-law, it turns out. He basically sends him to a, a bigger cheese. And from there, Jesus is taken to Pilate. We go up another step. It's like if you're playing a video game, you go from level to level and they get progressively harder and more difficult and the bosses get bigger and more powerful. That's what John's taken us through here. And so Pilate is, is the, well, he's the biggest boss, save for Caesar. And whilst John doesn't record what the, the Jewish leaders tell Pilate that they want Jesus charged with, what he's done wrong, it's clear that the issue is one of power. Hence, as Pilate has Jesus summoned in, did you, did you notice when the religious leaders turn up, they don't want to go in and eat with Pilate, and so he comes out to them. He's not stupid. He gets the time of year. He knows uh, that they don't want to make themselves ceremonially unclean. But when it comes to interviewing Jesus, he says, no, I'm going back into my seat of power and I'll have him brought to me. And no doubt his seat was above, you know, above where Jesus was. And Pilate settles into a line of questioning about kingship. So verse 33 of chapter 18 Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? There's a bit of back and forth. And then again, verse 37, Pilate says, you are a king then. You see, 
Pilate is threatened. Threatened by another authority figure. Pilate doesn't want to be somebody else's lackey. He doesn't want to do the Jewish leaders' work for them. And so he's quite antagonistic with them. But also, he doesn't like being, metaphorically speaking, shorter than anybody else in the room. Jesus, are you a king? Is that who you are? Are you here to rule or reign? Do you think you're going to be in charge? Check out the next chapter, verse 10 of chapter 19. As the conversation goes back and forwards, listen to how Pilate says, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Don't you know who's in charge? Power for Pilate is an obstacle when it comes to Jesus. But secondly, there's truth. Look down again at verse 37. Jesus' response when Pilate says, you are a king then. Jesus said, you, are, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is truth? Pilate wants no part in this discussion on truth. And his retort reveals not only that he's not on the side of Jesus. Jesus says, everyone who believes in the truth is on my side. They listen to me. Pilate is not listening. But it's not so much that he rejects the, the very notion of truth. But he doesn't like the circumstance of truth being used to push him around. Pilate wants truth to be like Plato. He wants it to be moldable and squashable and to be able to be shaped so that it benefits him. And he doesn't want this Jewish subject changing him. Pilate wants to be a man who speaks, not a man who listens. What is truth? Pilate is saying, I have no time for truth as you define it. I will call up truth when it's convenient to me. And I'm quite happy to ignore truth when it's not convenient to me. In our times, Pilate would be somebody who would like to block or mute or unfollow Jesus on his social media accounts. He wants to curate his social media so that the only people he reads or hears from or sees are the people who cooperate with his own beliefs. The only pe the people that will comfort his feelings. The people who will confirm the rightness of where he already stands. Perhaps you recognise that approach to truth in others or, or even in yourself. Jesus says, I have come to testify to the truth. What Jesus is saying here is, I have come to tell a great story. A story of who God is, of who, of who mankind is, and of how we stand with one another, God and man. 
and the truth about where we are headed and how there can be a great solution to this, what has so far been a horror story. I have come to testify to the truth, Jesus says to Pilate, and Pilate says, what is truth? And so the truth is an obstacle in the way of Pilate truly encountering Jesus. The third thing that we see in Pilate is fear. Power, truth, and then fear. What's interesting as we read through this account is that Pilate again and again will say to the the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. I can find no reason to do what you are asking. And we read in verse 6 of chapter 19, Pilate replying to the religious leaders, you take him, you crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. But the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and your job is to keep our laws. According to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, verse 8, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. He was even more afraid. It's interesting because John hasn't mentioned him being afraid at this point. We've got a lot of bluster from Pilate. We've got a lot of posturing. But he was even more afraid. The Jewish leaders present a charge of blasphemy against Jesus, a religious charge. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to have his origin from the divine, they say. And it's this that causes Pilate to be more afraid or very afraid. The Roman culture had a category in it for what we would call divine men. Men who stood somewhere halfway between heaven and earth. They weren't just mere men. There was something godlike amongst them. And suddenly in Pilate's mind, this man who has stood in front of him has gone from a man with big claims to potentially being somebody with divine power. And the thought strikes at his heart. This is now really a potential rival somebody coming with divine intervention a divine foe for Pilate and you can almost hear him thinking what have I done and you can hear the words that Jesus spoke earlier come back to his mind my kingdom is not of this world Pilate's been looking at Jesus and going where are your armies Where's your strength? You are a a pathetic king. That's why after he has him flogged and he brings him out, he says to the people, look, a man. He's just a man. And yet now, Pilate is afraid. And he's afraid of what it will cost him. Because of what he's done. And because of who Jesus might be. 
and he can't see a happy ending to this interaction. But his fear does not cause him to look, to embrace Jesus. Instead, it causes him to seek to coerce Jesus. Speak to me. Tell me what I need to know. He threatens Jesus. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do? Be under my control. And he finds himself trapped. Not wanting to oppose Jesus because he's scared, but also not wanting to oppose or rile the crowd. And the religious leaders get under his skin and say, you don't want to oppose Caesar either. And so his own fear stands between him and Jesus because of what he's done, because of who Jesus might be. So these are the three obstacles, the three problems faced by Pilate. But these problems pose a question. And the questions are, well, who is Jesus? And they don't just, it's not questions just posed by Pilate, but questions posed of Jesus for people who are like Pilate. People who have the obstacles of power, truth, and fear that stand between us and Jesus. These obstacles, these questions, they're common to mankind. So let's ask them of Jesus as we look at these three things. When it comes to power, let's ask the question, who makes a better king? Is it Jesus or is it me? Who ought to be in charge? Jesus, what sort of king are you? Or, to bring it back down to our level, what sort of kings are we? William Henley wrote that uh, famous poem, Invictus, that finishes with these lines, It matters not how straight the gates, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And people love it. Because it, we're all, well, we're all little pilots. We all want to be in charge of our own lives. And it becomes a problem because as Jesus is brought before us, it is announced that he is the king. And we have a power problem. We want to be the masters of our own fate. We want to be the captains of our soul. We want to make the decisions in life. Contrast William Henley's poem with the hope that Jesus brings for those who trust in him expressed by the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism that asks this, what is your only comfort in life and death? My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. 
He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is set aside the I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The Christian looks at Jesus and finds in him somebody who is a king who makes them safe and gives them purpose. And who in every moment of every day, in every circumstance says, I will be for you and I will protect you and I will work in you. The obstacle of power, self-power or kneeling before Jesus. Will I choose self-rule and its consequences or will I entrust myself to Jesus, the one who bought me with his blood? The one who has loved me beyond all my imaginings. The one who has cared for me, kept me. The one who commands me forever. When it comes to truth, let's ask this question of Jesus. Does the story of Jesus, the truth that he attests to, the one, the story that he exemplifies and brings to fulfillment in his own life, is that better than the story that I have cultivated for myself? Because we all make a story for ourselves. We all have an answer for the big questions of why I'm here and what my purpose is. And we have an answer for the question, what brings me joy and what will, when I get to the end of my life, I look back and think, these are the marks that I have to have hit to have made my life worthwhile. What is your story and is it better than the one that Jesus tells? And here's the test. What does your story do with truth? Are you treating truth like Plato? Molding and shaping it to fit what you want and what you believe. Jesus Christ comes into this world and says, I am the truth. And he rolls back the stone, just like Ewan was given the example last week, of that stone in the garden lifted up and the light flooding in. When that happens, when Jesus brings his truth and his story to bear on your life, do you flee away? Or do you embrace the widened, greater world that can be seen? Are you cultivating truth in the way that we cultivate our social media? I don't want to hear people talk about that. I don't want to hear about this. I'm muting that word. When it comes to fear, here's the question for Jesus. Can you be trusted with my future? We can imagine Pilate thinking that exact thing. As Jesus is being revealed in front of him. Jesus who, even though he faces death, is not afraid. Jesus, even though he's outnumbered, is not alone. Jesus who willingly walks this path for love for others. As Pilate experiences this Jesus, he must be asking the question, can I trust you with with my future? If I let you go. 
if Caesar hears that I've let go somebody who would claim to his title? Will you look after me, Jesus? Will you walk with me? Will you be enough? And of course, this account happens mere hours before Jesus will go to the cross. Will go and lay down his life willingly. Will submit to the very men that he has made. And will submit himself to crucifixion. And to suffer the consequences for the sin of humanity. And he says to all those who would meet him. This is how much I love you. This is how secure your future is. I am taking death out of the equation. I am taking the things that would separate you from the God that made you, the God who loves you, to enjoy all of his goodness and blessings. I am bringing you in and I'm doing it myself. And he gives the great example that he can be trusted with your future. Far more than you can be. The Bible leads us to ask these questions of Jesus because it is confident that in every way, at every turn, Jesus is sufficient. There is no question that catches Jesus out. And let me speak to those of you who are Christians, who are following Jesus. These problems don't go away when you turn to follow Jesus. There are still obstacles of enjoying life with him, of power, of truth, and of fear. And so let me encourage you to keep submitting to the kingship of Jesus. Why don't you pray for that? Lord, help me to follow your way. Help me to trust that you are a better king than I am. Keep refreshing your mind in Christ, the truth. Let your hearts be transformed by his word, by his principles, by his goodness. Let your minds be renewed in his thinking. And keep trusting. Keep trusting that he will have you into the future, no matter what this week brings about. No matter what that thing is that's on the horizon, be it a relationship or a hospital result, trust in the dark what you have learned in the light. But as we finish up, I just want us to ask one question. And I think John wants us to ask this question of Jesus. Who do you see when you look at Jesus? As we finish out our our series, as we draw to the end of the, the book of John, we've heard Pilate twice say, look. He says, look at this man. And he belittles Jesus. He says he's no king. 19 verse 5. And in the, the older versions, it has behold. Look. Behold the man. In his weakness, in his brokenness, in his unimpressiveness. And then verse 14. Behold your king, he says to the Jews who are baying for his blood. And both times, Pilate is setting up a Jesus who he doesn't believe in. 
so that the people will have their bloodlust sated and have their sin exposed. But it calls to mind how John starts his account of the life of Jesus. When he tells us about Jesus' cousin, a man called, another man called John, became known as John the Baptist, because that's pretty much all he did, baptise people and preach. And the chapter 1 of John tells us how John the Baptist, as he's walking along the road, sees Jesus. And he tells those that are standing with him, those who are part of his team, he says, Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Pilate says, Behold, so that you can get off, so that you can walk away, and so that I can keep my power, and I can sate my fear, and I can continue to mould the truth so it fits me and benefits me. And John the Baptist says, look at Jesus. Look at the one who has entered into this world so that your sin might be dealt with. So that you might come to know the God who made you and loves you. And so my question is this, who are you listening to? Are you listening to the words of Pilate, looking at Jesus so that you might turn away from him? Or are you listening to John the Baptist so that you look at Jesus and that you might find life? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the King, not just of the Jews, but of all peoples at all times. The King who will reign over humanity for all of history. The king who will be crowned before all people and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and every knee will bow before him. The king who one day will be recognised by all peoples across all times and history and they will either bow before him with joy because they know him and they love him and more importantly than that, they know that he loves them and he has kept them and will continue to keep them. Or they will bow before him and they will know with every fibre of their being that they rejected him, that they held on to their own power, that they moulded the truth for their own benefit, and they ran away from their fears. Who do you see when you look at Jesus? And that will change if you turn to him in repentance and faith. Who are Christians? Christians are people who have encountered Jesus and then they have come to worship him with joy in their hearts, who have known the reality that their sin is forgiven and they know the transforming work of God's spirit in them, opening their eyes to see more of Jesus, changing their hearts and lives so they might look more like Jesus. And they will know their God forever. 